to start, let's talk about um, the book of Esther. So we find Esther in the Old Testament, and the setting of Esther is in the Persian Empire. So again, y'all are experts. So they took all of the Israelite people to Babylon in exile. So um, the Babylonian people came and conquered kind of in waves and different parts of the kingdom were taken to Babylon in exile um, in different sections. So then this story is set after people go back to some people go back to Jerusalem, but some of the Jewish people stay. And so this story of Esther is set in the city of Susa, which is um, in the Persian Empire. So that's where our story is set. The audience that this story is written to, however, the audience is actually the people who have come back to Jerusalem. So the people who've come back to Jerusalem are very confused because they've been in exile for many years and now they're back in their homeland and their temple's been destroyed and a lot of people are really, really concerned with rebuilding this temple. It's their temple where they worship God. They were instructed to build this temple so they care so much about building this temple for God, which is an absolutely great thing to care about. But Israel, the nation, has always been set up like a place that um, to be holy is to be separate from others. The holiness that Israel has claimed has always been, it's only Gus, you are God's chosen people. And so now they live in the midst of a much more diverse group than they have ever lived before. And so they're just really asking the question, like, what do we do with people who aren't us? What do we do? We're so confused. We don't know. We don't know what to do. And so um, this story of Esther just really illustrates just a beautiful way to interact with people who are not you. Um, there's some people who um, really think that we need no foreign influence at all. Israel should remain just by itself and. Um, so we see that kind of thinking in the books of the Old Testament. We see that in Ezra. We also see it in Chronicles and Nehemiah. They're, they're very, very concerned with only us in this rebuilding of the temple in this post-exilic period. So then in the book of Ezra specifically, there are some people who are coming back from Babylon with Babylonian wives. And what do you do with a Babylonian wife in Israel? It's just not really acceptable, um, primarily because the ethnicity of your children is determined about on your mother's ethnicity. So now you have Babylonian children, and what what do you do with that? So in as in the book of Ezra, they um, collectively decide that what they need to do with the Babylonian wives is send them back to Babylon because you they don't have a place here. We're Israel. We are separate. We're set apart. And so the Babylonian wives have no place in Israel, which to which uh, the Bible kind of answers with a story of Esther, who's a Babylonian wife, who is also Jewish, who does some pretty cool things, right? So uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the story Kristen's going to talk to us. But um, I want you guys to think about how how is it going to be that um, 
separation from the world exists? Is that what God is calling the people to in this post-exilic period? So keep that in your brains. Yeah, so we're going to turn to Esther now. We'll see how much we'll have time to read since we know Chris is coming at four. So if we don't get through it all, um, I encourage everyone to go back and read it because it's a really fascinating story. Uh, So one of the things, how many of y'all are familiar with Esther? Pretty familiar? Okay. And what's one of the differences in Esther than any of the other books? Yes, God is not mentioned. Um, And that's part of this, even though God isn't mentioned, is he absent? And as we look at this, we'll see that, no, he's not. We can tell that he has a hand in this. Um, And what's really interesting that I learned recently is that there are Greek versions, and in the Greek version, God is actually mentioned in that one, but they think it was a later additional ad after the Hebrew one was written. So let's go ahead and turn to Esther. It gets really spicy in this one. (laughs) All right, so let's start with Esther 1. And we'll just read a little bit here. It was after this that the following things happened in the days of... Now, mine says Artaxerxes. I think different places have different king's names. The same Artaxerxes who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Artaxerxes was enthroned in the city of Zusa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for his friends and other persons of various nations. So... We're going to see a big theme around these banquets. They're going to throw lots and lots and lots of banquets. And we know that it's a bit of a hyperbole, a hyperbole, because at one point he says, or they say that the banquet lasted for 180 days. So um, it probably didn't last for half the year. So we already know it's a bit of an exaggeration when we're looking at Esther. Okay, so if we jump down to Esther 1.10, on the seventh, actually we'll go Esther 1.9 first. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti, this was King Artaxerxes' wife, gave a drinking party for the women in the palace where King Artaxerxes was. So women of the time, they had their own separate banquet, separate from the men. On the seventh day, when the king was in good humor, he told Haman Bazan, Thara, Boraz, Zaldotha, Abatas, and Therabah, the seven eunuchs who served King Artaxerxes, to escort the queen to him in order to proclaim her as queen and to place the diadem on her head and to have her display her beauty so all the governors and all the people of various nations for she was indeed a beautiful woman but queen vashti refused to obey him and would not come with the eunuchs okay so now this is a big disgrace he feels as the king um which it's you know vashti he just asked her to come (laughs) and display her beauty which feels like she has the right to refuse but the king's friends all then came around him and said If your wife disrespects you and says no to you, then how are our wives going to treat us? So then he sends out a decree that now Vashti is not going to be his queen anymore because she was disrespectful. So then let's catch up to Esther 2. After after these things, the king's anger abated, and he no longer was concerned about Vashti or remembered that he had said and how he had condemned her. Then the king's servant said, Let beautiful and virtuous girls be sought out for the king. The king shall appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, and they shall select beautiful young virgins to be brought to the harem in Susam, the capital. Let them be entrusted to the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let anointments and whatever else they need be given to them. Okay, so 
At this time, this is when all the many beautiful women are gathered. I imagine it's a little bit like the show The Bachelor. And so at this point, this is when we're going to see Esther come in. <laughs> so Esther 2.5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shami, son of Kish, of the tribe of ben Benjamin. He had been taken captive from Jerusalem among those who King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had captured. And he had a foster child, the daughter of his father's brother, Amandab, and her name was Esther. When her parents died, he, was brought her, uh, he brought her up to womanhood as his own. The girl was beautiful in appearance. So when the decree of kings was proclaimed, and many girls were gathered in Susa the capital in custody of Guy, Esther also was brought to Guy, who had custody of the women. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Okay, so now that we know, it's interesting because it's like six months, 12 months before she even gets to see King uh, Artaxerxes. So we'll go up to Esther 2.15. When the time was fulfilled for Esther, daughter of Amadabah, the brother of Mordecai's father, to go into the king, she neglected none of the things that Guy, the eunuch in charge of the women, had commanded. Now Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther went into King Artaxerxes in the twelfth month, which is Adar, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther, and she found favor beyond all the other virgins, so he put on her the queen's diadem. Then the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all his friends and the officers to celebrate his marriage to Esther, and he granted a remission of taxes to those who were under his rule. Okay, so now Esther was given the final rose, so she is the queen now. And um, so Mordecai is pleased to hear this. And it's very interesting because as um, Haley kind of talked about, like there isn't this mention of how a, a Jew, Jewish person is marrying a Persian person or um, how there's any disruption between it being of different Gentiles and races. Uh, so then what's interesting, we'll kind of skip along in three. In, and the end of that is when this plot is discovered by Mordecai and he finds out that um, two of the guards that are mad at King Artaxerxes are going to plot to kill him. And so Mordecai tells Esther, and then Esther tells the king, and he is very thankful and found out it was a true plot. And so now he's written in this book of records that Mordecai has helped save him. And so we think it's forgotten, So he can't, but we, now, we need to keep in mind that he's kept this in the records. So that's pretty exciting. Okay, so then we get down to... Um, Esther 3, after these events, King Artaxerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamandatha, a Borgian, advancing him and granting him precedence over all the king's friends. So all were at court who used to be obstinates to Haman, for so the king had commanded to be done. Mordecai, however, did not. I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time pronouncing that words. <laughs> Obstinance? Obeisance? Thank you. Then the king's courtier said to Mordecai, Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he would not listen to them. Then they informed Haman that Mordecai was revisiting the king's command. Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Okay, so then Haman decides that this must mean all Jews are bad because Mordecai is not bowing down to Haman as respect. So Haman's ego is very upset and he is not okay with this. Okay, so now we go to eight. Then Haman said to King Artaxerxes, there's a certain nation scattered among the other nations in all your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every nation, and they do not keep the laws of the king. 
It is not expedient for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they are to be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury. So the king took off his signet ring and gave it to Haman to seal the decree that was to be written and against the Jews. So it's a little interesting that the king was just like, okay, sure, here, take my ring, um, go ahead and sign that decree that uh, all of the Jews will be killed. And right before this, Haman actually did what's called lots or per, and he casted them to find out what day that he would set the decree when the Jews would die. And so that has anyone heard of the Purim festival? Yeah, so that's where it gets the name from because of Haman casting the lots. And so the Purim festival is still highly celebrated within the Jewish traditions. It's almost, um, as my friends tell me, it's kind of like a Halloween-type festival. People dress up in all kinds of costumes, and even the children are involved. They'll have a children's play, and one of them will be Haman, and one of them will be Mordecai, and you're supposed to boo when Haman gets up, and you're supposed to cheer when Mordecai, or I'm sorry, yes, cheer when Mordecai stands up, and they say that you're supposed to drink enough so that you don't, you can't decide between the boos and the cheers, and so it's a very fun festival evening. Um, I'm still trying to get invited to one because it just sounds like a great time. So yeah, so this is where this is where the story comes from. Um, so there's a decree now set against the Jews, and so Mordecai hears this, and now we'll pick up in Esther four. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and sprinkled himself with ashes. Then he rushed through the streets of the city, shouting loudly, an innocent nation is being destroyed. He got as far as the king's gate, and there he stopped, because no one was allowed to enter the courtyard clothed in sackcloth and ashes. And in every province where the king's proclamation had been posted, there was a loud cry of mourning and lamentation among the Jews. Okay, so um, this is going on outside of the royal gates. Again, King Atterxerxes still doesn't know that Esther is Jewish. Um, and Mordecai told Esther not to share her identity with him. So it wasn't that she was keeping the secret from Mordecai, but she is keeping the secret from the king. So now Mordecai knows he needs to enlist the help from Esther. Um, so let's see. Let's go to 4-9. Um, that person's name went in and told Esther all these things. So Mordecai couldn't actually come in to see Esther, so he told one of the guards to go tell Esther what's going on. Told Esther all these things, and she said to him, Go to Mordecai and say, All nations of the empire know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's no escape for that person. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. So we know that um, Mordecai has asked Esther to please go see the king and tell the king to stop this madness of the decree, because she's the only one who's going to be able to do this. But as the law was during that time, you couldn't go see the king unless you were summoned to see him. And Esther hadn't been summoned to see him. And so she was really worried that if she went to go see the king, then he would just kill her right away. So she was really concerned and right at this point, kind of looking out for herself, which we'll see that transformation come. Um, okay, so we're back to 4.11. All nations of the empire know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is no escape for that person. Only the one to whom the king stretches out the golden scepter is safe. And it is now 30 days since I was called to go to the king. 
When Harithas delivered her entire me- delivered her entire message to Mordecai, Mordecai told him to go back and say to Esther, Esther, do not say to yourself that you alone among all the Jews will escape alive. For if you keep quiet at such a time as this, help and protection will come to the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Yet who knows whether it was not for such a time as this that you were made queen. Then Esther gave the messenger this answer to take back to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast on my behalf for three days and nights. Do not eat or drink, and my maids and I will go without any food. After that, I will go to the king, and and contrary to the law, even if I must die. So we see this shift from Esther that she now is realizing she needs to put her people in front of herself and she's going to take a big risk there. Um, so I think that's one of the most quoted ones, um, whether you were queen for such a time as this, uh, which I think is a beautiful sentiment to keep among all of ourselves if we were made for a time as this. So this is when things, <laughs> I know I love that one. So I only have eight minutes. So I think we're going to do a little more highlights here, but it really is a wonderful story. So now we get to the part where Esther, goes to the king and the king receives her and he is so pleasantly surprised to see her that we immediately know that Esther is safe. Um, and so as I mentioned the children's book in the children's book Esther she's called the bell of patience and I think it's because of how she requests help from the king because she then the king immediately says you know whatever you would like I am happy to do so at that moment if someone who I needed help from said that to me I would immediately be like help save my people but instead she knows the way to the king's heart is through the banquets so she invites him to a banquet at her place and this is the time whenever um, I feel like her patience has come into play. So he and she invites him to a banquet the next day. And at the same time, though, Haman is also invited. And Haman, again, Mordecai shows that his disrespect to Haman by not bowing again. So Haman goes ahead and decides to build this big gallow. This big, it's like a tall, um, almost like a tall spike where you would put someone to death on. Yes. Um, and so Haman's pretty high on himself at this point because he thinks that he is going to be in the right. He's at this banquet, but he has no idea what's going to happen to him. So that night, the night before the banquet, he, um, the king Artaxerxes can't sleep. And he finally asks someone to read him the book of records. Well, if we remember in the book of records, he remembers that Mordecai had saved his life. So all of a sudden, he gets this grand idea that he should do something wonderful for this man who saved his life. And so he asks um, Haman, in the irony of sorts, what Haman would do with someone so magnificent and favorable and did amazing things for him. And Haman thinks it's himself because obviously Haman is amazing. So Haman is like, oh, you should let him ride on your horse and you should parade him around in your best stuff. And King Artaxerxes says, fantastic, go do that for Mordecai. So Haman is even more upset because now he has to walk around his mortal enemy. And um, so things continue to get 
fun. They have a banquet. Esther invites him to a second banquet because, again, she's that bell of patience, and she knows the first banquet just won't do. And then at the second banquet, she finally proclaims that someone has set a decree to kill all her people, including herself. And King Artaxerxes is shocked, which is crazy because he gave his signet ring to Haman. And she's like, it's Haman. And so King Artaxerxes is aghast. And so he walks out of the room. And when he comes back, he finds Haman, who is trying to beg for his life to Esther. But he thinks he's trying to seduce her. So uh, King Artaxerxes immediately casts him out to be put on the gallo that he had made for um for Ham, or for Mordecai. And so, as you notice the irony, that just kind of continues along this story. And so then instead, Haman is put to death, and then Esther and Mordecai are raised up. For some interesting reason, the Bible uh, tells us, which isn't, it's, it's a folklore myth, that kings weren't allowed to reverse their decrees. And so... King Artaxerxes is actually not allowed to tell everyone not to kill the Jews, which is interesting because as king, you would think he would have all this power. So instead, they set a new decree that the Jews are allowed to uh, fight against anyone who wants to kill him, to, to kill them. Um, and so it, it continues on with the story that Esther and Mordecai are um, put up to Mordecai becomes one of the king's advisors and they're left in a really happy space where obviously Haman, I guess, got his just desserts. <laughs> uh, anything you would like to add, Haley? In chapter two, verse 10, it says, Esther did not reveal to the people or ugh, Esther did not reveal her people or kindred for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. It's so specific that she's not supposed to tell anybody who she is because she's supposed to work God's will by being one of them. She's not supposed to be separate and different. She's supposed to be one of them to carry out God's will for all of God's people. Well, we would say in our context, God's people are all people. At the time, it was uh, God's people were the Jewish people, but it benefits both sides in this instance. So being part of this world, the world that they find themselves in, in this Babylonian culture, is so important that the rescue of everyone depends on her being a part of it. And that's such a strong critique for what was going on whenever um, in the time of Ezra where they were saying um, not to include other people because it's just so clear that she it was so important for her to be a part of these people in order to save her people so it's just such a beautiful illustration uh, do we have some questions do we take questions now is that what we do oh okay does anybody have a question you would like to ask we explained everything perfectly they have no questions yes sir right that is a very good point yes that it was a very uh patriarchal time where that everything mattered according to um, the dads. It's so interesting also that um, the time of Ezra was saying, or just like really saying that women were your property. You can send them home if you want to. They have no authority of their own. And then to counter this, we have a woman who ends up having a lot of authority. And so it's just a really cool counter, in my opinion. Yes, thank you for having us. Uh, correction, I method. Christian United Methodist Church, Plano, Texas. You might have typed it all in, but we have our own channel there. 
and like the sermons are on there, and off script is on there. That's where Reagan and I talk about the sermon each week on Spotify. Yeah, where I think it's just wherever you get. So, um, yeah, thanks, many thanks to Kristen and Haley for filling in. So, Sam pitched the fourth inning. I, I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, scoreless inning, had a strikeout, fielded a ball, got it first, and then a little pop out to end the game, fourteen to two. They're in first place. Uh, I, I could go on and on, but I, that's probably not what you. <laughs> All right, y'all. So we are covering the second part of Abraham's story, and uh, we're gonna. The way we're gonna do this today is to hit some highlights. So we're starting in eighteen, and I think not everybody, but I think most people are pretty active in uh, in worship, and so there are a couple of these sections, a couple of these chapters that Ray and I preached on in January, I mean, no, no, sorry, in August, all back to school, so not that long ago, and I don't want to repeat a bunch of stuff. So I'm going to hit a couple of highlights, and then we're going to focus on um, some stuff in the middle that people uh, oftentimes have questions about. So in 18, I'm just diving right into it. Sorry, everybody okay? Everybody good? Okay. Um, 18, so this is the, the very famous uh, passage where three men, three angels, representatives of God, some, some divine thing, uh, show up on Abraham's doorstep, and he shows extraordinary person, uh, hospitality, and they promise a son, which they had done in 17, we read it last week, and Sarah is hanging out outside the tent, she laughs, she gets a bad rap forever because she's the one who laughs, even though Abraham laughed in God's face like 15 verses before. <laughs> we remember the one, we remember Sarah doing that. Um, what's interesting, well, there's lots of things that are interesting about that, but, um, but I'm going to, that's all I'm going to say about that, because that, that's a familiar story. It's the promise, it's the heir. Once again, I mean, it's two chapters in a row where the heir is promised. Um, and then these three angels, messengers, whatever, uh, go on a very different mission. <laughs> and I think this is a, a pretty famous story. I think we probably, um, I think sometimes we read more into this story than is there. And I think if, we're, if we recall the prehistory, this notion of God punishing the wickedness of humanity, that probably needs to be uh, top of mind. It's a diversion from the story of Abraham and Sarah, really. I mean, it's not Abraham's in here, as we'll read, and Lot is in here. That's kind of, Lot is the kind of connector to, for this story. But it doesn't really fit the narrative arc of what Abraham has been promised and how Abraham's responding and, and all that. But um, it's a very famous passage. So chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And uh, Abraham went with them. To set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him, and he may charge his children and their and his household after them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has uh, come to me. And if not, I will know. So, all right, you say the word Sodom and Gomorrah, and um, 
all kinds of specific images come to people's minds. The word that's used here is um, outcry. And this is, um, when you, like it's, it shows up in the Pentateuch in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament several times, most famously when God hears God's people cry out in Egypt and sends Moses to deliver them from Egypt. When this uh, term is used, it's, it's really, it's about justice and injustice. So we'll keep that in mind. And he actually says, uh, in God says in, in verse 19, um, charge his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So this is a, a righteousness and justice uh, term frequently. So the men, uh, 22, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham returned stand, or remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Yeah, you guys know this exchange, right? It's a very famous exchange. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's pretty bold. I mean, I guess they've been in relationship for 25 years, and it's not the first time that Abraham has, you know, asked for clarification, shall we say. Um, he doesn't do this in 22, which I wish he would. We get to 22, but uh, so. This also has a very Job feel. The exchange, if you've read Job, uh, Job just kind of outright confronts God several times, um, and then at the end, God's had enough, <laughs> and then he puts Job in his place, but that's a story for another day. That's, what year would that be? That's like 12 years from now or something. We'll get to Job. <laughs> And the Lord said, fine, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, fine, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let me, the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So you're, if you're, first couple, a couple of weeks, we've talked about how there are these different sources of material. Uh, we've talked mostly about th these, the Yahwist source, the Eloist source. These are both pretty old. The Yahwist is the oldest, and then the priestly source. So in this, kind of, in this exchange here, this, if I'm being clear in the first few weeks, which one do you think this one is? Which source do you think this is from? It's not really a quiz. Probably the Yahwist, right? Because the Yahweh is this old, this ancient story around the campfire narrative. And this is the one where in uh, Genesis 2, God's playing in the dirt and makes Adam. And then Adam's lonely, so he makes Eve. Um, it's a very, it's a God that interacts with humanity in a way that humanity interacts with humanity. And uh, the priestly account, on the other hand, is this exilic source that's talking in these big majestic terms. And so, yeah, this is the 
almost certainly the, one of the ancient sources, stories told around the campfire. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made, made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So this is the same hospitality that his uncle had shown, right? So Lot and Abraham are clearly raised right. They know that, in, and this is like the, the custom in the ancient Near East was, I mean, hospitality was essential. You, you know, you didn't have hotels. You didn't have um, places where pe people could stay. So for all of our sakes, even if we didn't know each other, necessarily, we were expected to show hospitality to, to strangers, to, to uh, travelers. Lot and Abraham definitely do. And it seems as though Lot knows something about staying on the square. That doesn't sound like a good idea, he says. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, why, uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And that's, there's definitely a sexual connotation there. There's no kids in here tonight, right? Um, I mean, that's, you guys know that. If there's a, <laughs> my Roy Heller, whenever he would read something in Hebrew, my Old Testament professor, uh, whenever he would read something that was, had some kind of insinuation, he would go like this. <laughs> because like uh, feet is a euphemism for, um, something, and uh, obviously knowing is as well. Lot went out of the door to the men and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And this is a, it takes a turn here. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. That's not great. That's not very good parenting. <laughs> right? I mean, that does reflect the I mean, you guys just talked about the status of women, sounds like. Um, but regardless, that's not, Lot's not exercising good judgment either. But they replied, stand back. And they said, this fellow should come here, or came here as an alien, and he would play the judge, talking about Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we're about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people. Uh, the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, oh, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Uh, there's, listen, I, I know we don't, especially in this story, we don't often think of grace showing up, but Lot didn't do what, he told, what they told him to do here, and, but they don't destroy him, right? They don't send him up in a puff of smoke. Um, yeah, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and left him outside the city. 
when they had brought them outside, they said, flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills or else you'll be consumed. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, your servant has found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot flee to the hills for fear the disaster will overtake me and I die. Look, that city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, very well. I grant you this favor too, and I will not uh, overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to that place. Then the Lord rained fire, uh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and saw the smoke of the land going up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. So what, it's, what ends up happening with the story? Well, okay, let me ask you. When you read the story, what do you think of the core issues here? Like, what do, you, what do you read in the text? That, uh, why, like, why is God going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Wickedness. Yeah, wickedness, exactly. That's exactly right. You know, we, we end up, Sodom is obviously where this word comes from. Uh, and we end up reading uh, some sexual behavior into this story that is not necessarily there. Now, clearly, the, the men of the city are trying to do violence against these visitors. Um, but God had decided to destroy Sodom before that happened. And the same thing that Sodom and Gomorrah are guilty of is the same thing that we read in the prehistory, <laughs> why God destroyed the world with a flood, and the implication uh, of why the Tower of Babel had to come down. Also, frankly, why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. So this is, um, this is of the same theme. And the specific, the specific violations are about hospitality. And that's not, I'm not talking about like making good finger sandwiches for your guests. I'm talking about like the, the rule in the ancient Near East that you had to care for somebody who was passing through. Because that, like, for society to exist, that was necessary. And then there is clearly uh, the issue of sexual violence. You've got... You have to be reading it with a particular bias to read into it anything about homosexuality. I'm not trying to change anybody's mind about you know how, how whatever your theology is around this issue, but we what gets read into this text is something that's not really there. This is about the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about violations of fundamental principles of how people interact. Uh, clearly, the threat of sexual violence, and nobody really comes across looking all that great. Abraham. Um, negotiates on behalf of grace, which is a beautiful exchange, not only because Abraham is the negotiator, but because God listens. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't, we don't serve a, we don't love and serve a, a disinterested God. We love and serve a God who's interested in an in a actual relationship with us. And so uh, this is just the first of many times in scripture where God seems to change God's mind based on interactions with humanity, which is pretty awesome. Um, Lot does the initial, the initial thing well regarding this fundamental principle of hospitality that his uncle had just shown in the previous chapter to these same two men. Like these, there, there's a thread through all of this. 
Uh, but then, you know, he's willing to give away his daughters, which is just, you know, I, none of us can really wrap our heads around that. So um, theologically, you know, you've got to decide for yourself how important of a chapter this is. Is it, and, and if it's, and uh, not only how important it is, but what it's specifically trying to say. So we've, we've talked several times now about how the prehistory theme is this notion of cre the creator creating creation, which is not just a redundant sentence, and, how, and how over and over again creation doesn't want to be, I should say creator, um, doesn't want to be an obedient servant of the creator. Like we want to be in control. And oftentimes the wickedness of humanity is our clinging at power and authority and dominance and all those things that, that we want to do in our darker days. And clearly, um, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibiting those behaviors. Um, so in that regard, it is certainly within the theme of these first 25 chapters that we've been reading. This does not come up in the lectionary, by the way. <laughs> so we only ever talk about it in Bible study, which is probably good because it, you know, it's a tough text. You got to do some wrestle with it. Constantly, we underestimate God's grace all the time. And, and that leads to all kinds of bad things. It, it affects our willingness to go to God, right? Because we end up running from God in, in shame and guilt. Um, I mean, God's got solutions for that. That's kind of God's specialty. <laughs> Certainly Jesus' specialty. But then also, if we're supposed to be reflections of that grace, we also fail to show it to others. Um, yeah, Wesley was pretty big on that. Grace is not just a, like it's, grace is so, such a thorough part of Methodist theology and Wesleyan understanding of Christian theology that um, you can't get around it. I'm actually looking at amazing grace here on the pulpit. That's pretty cool. Or on the podium here. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. So the question was about Lot's wife. What's, what's going on there? Um, some archaeologists argue that there actually was a big pillar of salt that they were trying to explain in this vicinity, honestly. Honestly. Uh, also, you could probably fill in the names of Sodom and Gomorrah with other names of cities. It, like, these are two cities that later uh, authors did not have a high opinion of. <laughs> so there's lots of, in, in Scripture, some of these stories that, that read more like kind of legendary stories about ancient history are used to explain something. Like, to explain, well, you could make that argument actually for the snake. The snake with no feet. Um, that part of that story unpacks that curiosity, which is, it looks unnatural when they are, you know, slithering around. How'd that happen? Well, we know about this Adam and Eve character, and, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, um, the unfortunate thing about that part of the story, though, is uh, she didn't get a lot of grace, <laughs> right? I mean, the there are places uh, in Scripture where there's, like, Hagar. I mean, the story with Hagar, where there's, there's some grace there for her that's kind of surprising, given her um, historical uh, part of the narrative. Um, Lot's wife doesn't get that same out. Lot did, because Lot kind of tarried, and they said, no, you better come now. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, the, the, in, a, in a patriarchal society, uh, you have to, and in a patriarchal uh, and all of Scripture was written in the context of a patriarchal society, you sometimes have to look hard for um, positive slash powerful slash, you know, images of women. Or read between the lines or whatever. I, they're there. They're there. But it's not my favorite story. 
this, this whole section, ha- the, I think I, if you were in church when I preached on uh, the command to sacrifice Isaac, I, like that's not, I've just struggled with that one for a long, long time. Worse so after I had kids. Um, so after that, there is some historical uh, stuff that, you know, has, I guess, some interest to the original authors for sure and probably to the original audience, but that doesn't do a whole lot to advance the theological narrative of Genesis. So uh, we're going to skip the end of 19. And then Abraham sells out Sarah again, first part of 20, but we the same song, second verse. We've seen that before, so... Um, we're going to skip that as well. Yeah, she's my sister. Uh, and jump to the birth of Isaac So in 21. Okay, so now, after all of this, after these decades of uh, waiting, we have the, the delivery, <laughs> pun intended, I suppose, on the promise of the heir. So the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son whom Sarah bore him, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. Way better deal than Ishmael got. Ishmael was when he was 13, Isaac when he was eight, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not, shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is... Through Isaac, that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took uh, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes, and then she went away and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, do not let me look upon the death of the child. This is really heart, heart-rending. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up, your, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a, a, him, uh, I make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother gave him, uh, got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Uh, First of all, I I do think we can say uh, all's well that ends well with Hagar and Ishmael, in a sense. Um... They are the powerless ones in this story, but God does not abandon them, I guess is the way to put that. So uh, if God is the God of creation, we've talked about that a lot, uh, and God is the God of punishment, I don't think you can escape that in Genesis, certainly not 
in the material we've read thus far. And God is the God of the promise, and God is the God of grace. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah follows this narrative here, the creation and punishment piece. Uh, the promise and grace part is, is really pretty clear in this chapter with Isaac, the resolution of the story of Ishmael. Because uh, punishment is not 100% of the time, and there's always some context of grace. He could have dealt harshly with um, Sarah, frankly, for the way that story turned out, God I'm talking about, but he didn't. Uh, he he handles the way, he handles this whole situation, I think, in the most grace-filled way possible. Because Abraham and Sarah have gotten themselves into this mess. They, um, they created a life in, a, in an attempt to be the creator <laughs> instead of the created, that fundamental problem in Genesis. And yet, God does not punish that, that offspring. Doesn't punish Hagar, doesn't punish Ishmael. Doesn't even punish Abraham and Sarah, but promises to make a nation of Ishmael as well, uh, which is a very creative best-case scenario <laughs> for Hagar and Ishmael. But that's where Ishmael's story ends in the Judeo-Christian tradition, not in the Muslim tradition, obviously. But for us, that's where the story ends. And now, what's going to happen, really, the rest of um, the rest of Genesis is the story of the unfolding of of this promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah. We now have Isaac, and we're going to see the beginnings of the blessing of the, of the world through that promised heir. Sorry I was only here for half the time, but it was, we got, I feel like we covered a fair amount of territory. So next week, we are going to begin the story of Jacob, and we'll actually do... Um, We'll do that through, we'll backtrack and cover 24. Uh, 24 is the story of Isaac and Rebecca. That's an important part of the story. We'll, we'll pick up the story there. The, the way the rest of, like once Isaac is delivered, you have the Genesis 22, the command to sacrifice Isaac. And again, we did a sermon on that a few weeks back, so I don't want to revisit that territory necessarily. Um, and once that happens, once God has, has tested Abraham's faith, this is on the Abraham, Abraham side. How faithful are you and how obedient are you? Both of which in Genesis become equated with righteousness. So you've finally gotten this heir. Um, now guess what? I need you to sacrifice him to me. And uh, unlike the exchange at Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham doesn't really argue. He, he just gets on the road to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And of course that turns out fine. <laughs> No, God had no intention of have, asking him to go through with this. But the, the promised heir, like the, the height of the test of Abraham's faith is in this command to sacrifice Isaac. And um, he passes. And so once that happens, once he's gotten the heir after all these years, once the story of Ishmael has been resolved, once he has proved his faith to God once again, then all that's left to do is for him for Sarah to die, for Abraham to remarry, and then die. <laughs> and that, that's what happens in a few verses pretty quickly. So next week we'll pick up with the next part of their story, which is their offspring. All right. Thank you very much, you guys. God bless you.